Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 is our text for today. This is the 17th sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 37 handwritten pages, and the title of the sermon today is You Are Bad. Please turn to Romans chapter 3. As you do, remember that God loves you. Keep that in mind throughout the entirety of this sermon. Remember it for the rest of your life. Listen as I read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Please pray with me. Lord, by your word, convince us deeply that we are bad. Amen. I have no outline today. I have no points of observation or clarification. I have no slides. I have no photos. I only have a few short quotes I simply need to tell you today, as simply as possible, based upon the Word of God, that you are bad. Now, let me define the word you when I say that you are bad. You is not referring to those of you who are saved or converted. It is referring to the unsaved, the person who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the you to whom I am referring when I say that you are bad. Um, if you are saved, your life will certainly not be a sinless life, but it will look very different from what is described in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. So what we're having today is what is known as an evangelistic message, which is directed at unsaved people, directed toward the lost, in order to show them what God says about their condition. The reason that we're going to do that today is because you can't be saved until you are lost and you know that you are lost and you know what it means from God's perspective to be lost. Well, that is spelled out clearly in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. This is God's opinion. This is God's perspective on your condition apart from Jesus Christ. However, even though the message today is going to be directed at the lost, Today, uh, this will be of benefit to those of you that are saved, and it will be of benefit to you in that it will remind you of what you used to be and what God saved you out of, and that should make you thankful. It should cause you to praise God and say, 
Thank you, Lord, that used to be me, that is not me anymore. There's a third category of people today that will be listening, and that is those of you that think that you are saved, and you sincerely think that you're saved. You're not trying to fool anyone. You really do think that you're saved. You claim to be saved. You might even be baptized and be a church member, but yet perhaps today as you listen to this passage, you will be convinced uh, that this passage describes you and that you're not really saved, but that you have been deceived into thinking that you are saved, but your life looks more like this than it does like that of a Christian. But no matter what today, you just need to know that you are bad, and you need to know that this scripture is speaking to both Jews and to Gentiles. So, in our unconverted state, all of us, that's all of us without exception, are bad, and this passage paints the picture of what that looks like. Let's do a review very quickly. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes the case that Gentiles are bad. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul makes the case that the Jews are bad. And then in Romans chapter 3, in the first eight verses, which we have covered so far, we covered that last week, Paul makes the case that even though the Jews are bad, they do have an advantage. And the advantage that they have is that they have been given the word of God or the oracles of God. Now, they did not believe, and Paul goes on to say that just because they didn't believe, it doesn't mean that God is not faithful or God has failed or that God is in any way unfair. No, he says that God is indeed fair and that his glory will be displayed both in his judgment and in his mercy. He will judge everyone, which brings us to our text today. Paul once again anticipates a question. Now I know what you're thinking. He anticipates a question from the Jew who would be reading his letter. And the question is this. Paul, in light of all that you have argued in the book of Romans up to this point, what then? Are we Jews any better off at all? That is verse 9. In other words, when we Jews get to the judgment, will there be any sense in which our Jewishness is a benefit to us to help us get through the judgment? And the answer is no, no, exclamation point, no, not at all, no, no can do, Daryl Hall and John Oates, no, there is no sense, the answer is no. And Paul said, I have already explained this to you. In verse 9, it says, we have already, look at that word already, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that is Gentiles, non-Jews, are under sin. Well, Paul, when did you previously bring this charge? And the answer is, in chapter 1, Paul brings the charge against Gentiles by saying that they suppress the truth which they know by looking at nature. They are not thankful to the God that they know that exists, and they do not give him glory. And so what God has done in turn is he has turned them over to themselves to do lots of bad stuff, and that bad stuff is described in Romans 1, 24 through 32. He moves on to the Jews in chapter 2, and he says that these Jews are inconsistent and they are hypocritical. In other words, they accuse Gentiles of being bad while they themselves simultaneously commit these same sins. The spiritual privileges which the Jews enjoy and which they bank upon in order to get them through the judgment day are not going to be any benefit to them at all. 
the law, circumcision, the covenant, they all lead the Jews to a false sense of assurance. Having those things does not help them. Let me illustrate. This week, Anna and I took our grandchildren to Chick-fil-A in order to buy two milkshakes. Why two milkshakes? Because I had two gift cards which entitled me to a milkshake. And so we were driving through the drive-thru. It was a very busy day. It was about noon. Two cookies and cream milkshakes. We get up to the window. I hand the gift cards to the person working there. She looks at it and she says, sir, these cards are expired. Do you know what that means? That means the law plus $2.75 will get you onto the subway, and it means the two expired gift cards plus $9.54 will get you two milkshakes at Chick-fil-A. It is of no value to possess the law, the covenants, circumcision. It gets you nothing. And Paul says we have already, emphasis upon the word already, in the, at the end of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. But here's the key at this point where you need to shift your thinking just a little bit, but it's an important, even though it's subtle, it's an important point, and that is that up to this point, Paul has been speaking collectively of Jews and Gentiles as a people group, and he's not been speaking about individuals. Well, that is about to change when he gets into verses 10 through 18. But for now, the point is Jews and Greeks collectively are all guilty before God. They are all under sin. Let's take that word under, U-N-D-E-R, and let's camp out there for just a moment. The word under does not mean that they occasionally sin. It means that they are under sin, and sin is their master. It is, it is slavery imagery, and sin controls them they are enslaved to it. You know, in studying this week, week, I became convicted that my gospel presentation is too weak with respect to the powerful and destructive effects of sin in our lives. If you've ever seen me share the gospel, I do it on a dry marker board. I, I, I draw it all out. If you've heard my gospel presentation, you'll remember that I try to stress the fact that all of us are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. I still agree with that. I will still say that because that is true and that is essential information. But what I need to add to that is not just the universality of sin in us by nature and by choice, but what I need to drive home are the horrid effects and the power of sin that controls our lives and destroys and damns our souls. It is the weight of sin that needs to be stressed. We are under sin. We are under the control of sin. We are under the weight of sin. We are under the influence of sin. We are under the power of sin. Oftentimes in my gospel presentation, I will stress James chapter 2, verse 10. Once again, I will continue to do that, which says that if anybody keeps the whole law and breaks it in one point, he is guilty of all. That is important to know in stressing the fact that all one must do in order to be disqualified from going to heaven based upon their own record is to have one sin. That is true, 
that needs to be explained. However, show me the person that has just one sin. That person doesn't exist. What needs to be stressed is that we are under the power of sin. You see, we think about the human race sometimes as though uh, we are Olympian figure skaters and that we are doing pretty well and the judge is looking at us and then every once in a while we might just slip a little bit but not too bad and we will get our score reduced. That is not the imagery of being under sin. Being under sin is like a guy that is smashed. He is hammered. He is drunk. He has never had on a pair of skates in his life. And he goes onto the ice and he tries to do a triple axle in front of judges who are very astute. Can you envision what will happen? That is us when we are under sin. We are under sin. I want to illustrate it in uh, another way. Dan, if you would come up here for just a moment. So here's Dan, and Dan is Dan. And I am sin. Please do not think of sin as though something which is speaking to him or something that is hovering around him or something that is touching him and infecting him. To be under sin, you have your feet on the floor? Okay. This is to be under sin. This is the effect that sin has on us. It is all-consuming. Don't worry, Mary. He'll be okay. He'll be all right. Okay? There'll still be a wedding. He's all right. To be under sin is, is to have sin upon you and for it to control you. To be under sin. That, and when I share the gospel in my office with you on the dry marker board, I just hope Dan's there all the time. But, <laughs> but I think you get the point. We are under sin, or to, to shift the metaphor slightly, it is as if God pulls you over and he asks to see your license and your registration, and he asks you to get out of the car and to walk a straight line and to touch your nose with your finger and to breathe into a tube, after which God says, you have been charged with an L-U-I, an L-U-I. You are living under the influence of sin. And so don't pass over this word under as theoretical or as a theological concept where, yes, sin does a lot to us. And don't even think of being under sin in terms of legal or forensic terms, that it has something to do with our record before God. I want you to see yourself as under sin admitting to and grieving over and despairing over the fact that you cannot beat sin and you cannot get free. It has control over you. It is your boss and you are going to fall and you are going to fall frequently because sin is on top of you. Now you can do lots of things to try to defeat sin. You can make New Year's resolutions, or you can go to a psychiatrist in order to try to beat the guilt, or you can start meditation, or you can take medication, or you can read a self-help book. You could join a support group. For crying out loud, you could even join a church. 
But with all of that, sin is not impressed. Sin is not intimidated. Sin is not threatened. Sin says, do whatever you want to try to improve your life morally, but let there be no mistake. At the end of the day, knock yourself out. At the end of the day, I am in charge. Sin just looks at us and politely smiles. And when we fall, and we will, and we will frequently, sin looks at us and says, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Sin is in control. That's what it means to be under sin. It is slavery. And the irony of it all is we treat sin like he is a family member, and he is welcome to hang around as long as he wants. It's just a foregone conclusion that he will control our lives. Now, we might even bemoan the consequences of sin. We might fantasize about the day when one day we would be free from its power. We might even kick ourselves and beat ourselves up when we fall. But regardless of how we feel about it, at the end of the day, that word under is a strong word. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. It speaks and we obey. And even as Christians, sin is at work in us. For if we say we have no sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. That was said to Christians. But for the unsaved, it's not just sin having an impact upon them. Sin is all-encompassing upon them, controlling them. And perhaps at this point, the Jew is not yet convinced that he or she is as bad as the Gentile. And so what Paul needs to do now is to convince the Jew that they are every bit as bad as the Gentiles. And he does it brilliantly by going to the document which the Jews supposedly believe in, the document that they boast in possessing, the document which is supposedly their delight, the document of which Paul says back in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, is that which gives them an advantage over the Gentiles. The document that I'm referring to are the Holy Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures, and not just the Law of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but the entire Old Testament. Paul goes to that beloved sacred literature in order to prove to the Jew that both Jew and Gentile are bad. And so what we have is a summation of our condition in verses 10 through 18. This is the most explicit place in the Bible which speaks about the fact that we are bad. I am bad for the Bible tells me so. And the list of quotes which Paul gives out in machine gun, rapid-fire order, are known as a katina, literally a chain, a string of quotes, one after another, with no pause, no commentary, boom, 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 with Paul just giving one scripture after another in order to prove to the Jews that they are bad. Now, here's the thing. As we look at this list in an overarching way, this list of Old Testament quotes, First of all, Paul does not pause to tell us which books of the Bible he is quoting from. 
He works off of the assumption that those that are reading this letter, his audience will know the Old Testament scriptures. That's where they come from. But let me say this. Even if they did not know the Old Testament scripture, you do not have to be familiar with the scripture in order for the scripture to convict you and for the scripture to impact you. But Paul is working off the assumption that they would know this. And so he does not supply in the middle of this machine gun, rapid fire, katina, chain of Old Testament quotes. He does not supply cross references for each, each quote. And so today, I'm not going to supply cross-references for you either. If you want to know where these quotes come from, if you have a good study Bible, it will tell you instantly where he is quoting from. They come from the books of Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, and Psalms, especially from the Psalms. Also, generally speaking, from this list of Old Testament quotes, I want you to be aware that Paul constructs his argument with a theme, and the theme is the human anatomy. Uh, He makes reference to the mind when he says that there is none that understands, that is the brain, and then he goes on to speak about the throat and the tongue and lips and mouth and feet and eyes. This is a true picture of total depravity, total depravity means that every part of us has been infected by sin. Paul, interestingly, and I find this very interesting, lists no sexual sins in this at all. You remember at the end of Romans chapter 1 when he spells out the litany of Gentile sins. There are no sexual sins listed in that. There are no sexual sins listed here. He speaks first to our relationship with God, how there's none that seek after God, and then he talks about our relationship with one another, the way we speak and how we are violent toward one another. That is the overarching pattern that we see in this katina of Old Testament quotes. Also, and most importantly, please keep in mind the fact that Paul wants to stress that this includes each and every individual. Previously, he has been speaking about people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Now he wants to bring it home to you, Y-O-U. You are bad. So he says, without exception, everyone is guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. No exemptions, no exceptions. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. And so when I said at the outset of the message, you are bad, I I meant you and me, and I meant the person that's sitting beside you right now, but, but that's really not what I want you to think about. For our purposes today, I want you to think about you. Practically speaking, knowing that other people are sinners will not help you. In fact, that might even hurt you. You need to concentrate upon the fact that you are in the boat. It doesn't matter who is in the boat with you. I'm sure that as the Titanic was going down, there were some thoughts of people who were perishing. Isn't it horrible that so many people are dying? But I guarantee you that when they hit that freezing cold water, And when that water started to fill their lungs and they were going under, they were not thinking about how many people were dying. They were thinking about one thing, and that is that they were dying. Right now, I want you to think about the fact 
Not that you are dying, but that you are dead. You are bad. When I say that, I'm not excluding the rest of us. I am just communicating with you. You are bad. The Bible tells me so. And so this amalgamation of scriptural proofs starts off with a headline, an overarching theme for the rest of the Katina, and that is that there is none righteous, no, not one. That word righteous is going to be something which is used throughout the book of Romans. You'll remember it was introduced back in chapter 1, verse 17, when Paul gives the good news of the gospel, and he tells us that we need a righteousness to stand before God. It is not our own righteousness. It is an alien righteousness which another person, that is Jesus, earns for us and gives us freely by faith, and that is our salvation, and that's what we're going to look at next week. But for Romans 3.10, he is talking about your righteousness, and he's saying, quite frankly, you don't have any. In other words, you, left to yourself, in your current condition, could not pass through the judgment day without being damned and condemned. Or to put it another way, you are bad. And he speaks first about how you are bad in reference to your relationship with God. Notice what it says, please, in verse 11. No one understands, no one seeks for God. This is a verse that I will use when I am trying to defend the doctrines of grace, specifically to spell out what it means to be totally depraved, that we don't understand the gospel left to ourselves and that we do not seek after God. You know, this has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with education, nor does it have anything to do with intelligence. I have shared the gospel with people that are infinitely smarter than me, and quite frankly, as I'm looking out at who's here today, most of them are a lot smarter than you, and they could not grasp the simple logic of the gospel. Why? Because it's not something which is comprehended through the intellect. They don't understand the holy requirements of God. They do not understand the joy of salvation in heaven. They don't understand the horrors of damnation in hell. Again, they're bright people, but they're not able to get it. Whereas there are other people who, I'm not trying to be uh, cruel here in any way, but they're a little dull, but yet they completely understand and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. The natural human mind is not capable of understanding the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14, verse 14 says that the natural person does not accept or does not comprehend the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And you say, well, this is really sad. This is really sad that people don't possess in their fallen state the ability to comprehend the gospel. This is really sad in light of all the people who are genuinely seeking God. And I would say, yes, you are right. That would be sad if there were people that were genuinely, truly seeking God. But the next phrase tells us that these people actually don't exist for no one, no, not one seeks for God. You've probably heard of a seeker-sensitive church. Let me explain to you, please, the paradox of the seeker-sensitive church. 
The, the, the irony and the paradox of the seeker-sensitive church is the fact that there are actually people who go there. Because by definition, biblically, if it is a seeker-sensitive church, no one should be there because no one seeks for God. We do not seek after God left to ourselves. Thomas Aquinas was once asked, well, it, 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 how do you explain the fact that people are seeking for purpose in their lives and they're looking for peace and they're, they're looking for relief from their guilt? And Thomas Aquinas wisely replied, these people are looking for the benefits of what can be found from God. They don't want God himself. They are not seeking God himself. John Gershner put it very clearly when he said, if the devil would walk up to you and he would offer you a ticket to heaven, you would gladly accept it because ultimately what you want is heaven. You don't want God himself. You see, this is where it gets really tricky. You might see someone who will come to North Shore Baptist Church who is in a state of desperation. and They will say, I need help. My life is falling apart. Well, the question is, do they want God? Maybe, maybe not. Do they want God or do they want a way to get out of their mess? And there is a difference. Let me explain to you one of the ways where you can tell where you really don't want God. When you get sick, and even if you're an atheist, you, you know this is true, you cry out to whatever that higher power is which you claim does not exist. Or if you are a Christian or Christianized and you are sick or you are in trouble or there's some sort of despair in your family, you will cry out to God as soon as he heals you, as soon as he gives you what you want, as soon, Pharaoh, as the frogs go away, you change instantly and go back to living the way that you were before. Why? Because you really didn't want God. All you wanted was what God would get you and, or give you. And what Paul is saying here from the Old Testament is there is none that seeks after God. You, left to yourself, are not righteous. You don't understand and you don't seek after God. But he goes on in verse 12 to continue to describe our total depravity. And he says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You have this bracket or this inclusio at the beginning. No, not one. And then no, not one. And then this sin that is in the middle here. And what is it that describes the person that is unconverted? That is that they have turned aside. This is not complicated language. This is not the person who is sincerely following a path in life and just happens to get lost by mistake. This is the person that knows exactly the difference between right and wrong. It is Adam. There's a tree. Stay away from that tree. Don't eat it. It is not complex. And he eats. This is not difficult to understand. Yesterday, I took two of my grandchildren, Mabel and Merrick, to Dunkin' Donuts. You say, wow, Pastor, you've had a great week. You take your kids out for milkshakes and donuts. Another sermon for another day. But as they left the house, Charlie said to them, you guys can get the donuts, but you cannot eat them until after supper. And so we get in the wagon and we walk to the Dunkin' Donuts and we buy the donuts and we have not left the parking. We have not left the parking lot of the Dunkin' Donuts. And Mabel says, give me my donut. I want to eat it now. 
I said, Mabel, do, now do you, do you remember what your dad said? He looked, looked me straight in the eye, beautiful blue eyes. Yes. Does your dad want you to eat it now? No. Are you allowed to eat it now? No, I am not. Do you want to eat it right now? Yes. Give it to me right now. What, what does that mean? There's no righteous more. No, not one. But, but, but Mabel, Mabel is not unique. Very seldom do I sin unintentionally, or I just happen to, oh, on second thought, that was sin. We know the difference between right and wrong, and the, we, we have turned aside. And what is the result of that, Paul says, is that we have become worthless. What a word, worthless. Wow, it's not a mistake that we've made, but we have been rendered worthless. R.C. Sproul tells the story of a friend of his who was writing his doctoral dissertation. Uh, this is before the days of everything being saved in the cloud, and so this man had, had written his thesis. Uh, he just had to make a few changes, and, and he was ready to become a doctor. Lo and behold, there is a fire at his house, and this fire burns all of his work. It is consumed. He has to start over. Why? Everything that he has done up to this point is now worthless. Everything that you have done in your life to stand before God is worthless and of no value. All of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. All that we have in the final judgment, which we can count as points toward our salvation, is nothing. It is worthless. Well, what about the mother who sacrifices for her children? Or what about the soldier who, who falls on a hand grenade? It is worthless. It is of no value. It is of the same value as an expired Chick-fil-A milkshake gift card. John Calvin says that those acts of the kind mother or the soldier who sacrifices for another soldier, it is just civic righteousness. It is commendable before men, but it is worthless. Hang on to that word, worthless before God. You are bad. You, in terms of your righteousness in presenting that before God, are worthless. The back end of the bracket, again, just accentuates the fact that it is all of us, not even one. So the Jew reading this cannot argue with this, and the reason that the Jew cannot argue with this is because this is coming straight from their sacred writings, from the Old Testament, from their document. Well, now he starts in with the body parts metaphor, and it first has to do with speech and then has to do with violence. Look at the speech in verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11, that the mouth of the wise is a fountain of life. It says in Romans chapter 3, that your mouth is, is a pit. It, it is a grave. Open up. Stick out your tongue. Say, ah. God looks in and he says, I see skeletons and I see death. Stick out your tongue. Let me see your tongue. 
He looks at it and he says, all men are liars and that includes you. He says, let me see your lips. Your lips are spewing forth venom. You use your words to slander and to hurt other people and to injure and to wound other people. Your words even can kill other people. The venom of asps is deadly just as your words are deadly and wicked. Now, not only is the verbal communication of the ungodly an arena of death and deception and destruction, but notice another D word, it is also dirty. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's foul language, but it is also taking God's name in vain. It is profanity, but it's not just profanity, but it's profanity with an exclamation point because that which is propelling it is bitterness in the heart. So do Christians occasionally let one slip? Well, Anna does. So <laughs> I, I, I would have to say, I would have to say yes. But it's not the pattern of our speech. The reason it's not the pattern of our speech is because we have a new heart. Dan, if you could take care of those two, uh, thank you. It's not the pattern of our heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, here's the point. What comes out of your mouth is who you are. Paul Tripp tells the story of a drunken uncle at Christmas when he was a little boy. And although at the time his mother, I don't even believe, was a Christian, but the uncle would just get together with the family at Christmas and he would just say all kinds of things. And then at the end he would apologize and he would say, well, I didn't really mean that. And as they would be driving home on Christmas night, Paul Tripp's mother would say, I want you to learn something, kids. He meant every word that he said. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The point is, you are bad and you say bad words because you have a bad heart. And whether it is lies or curses or slander, you know that this is true of you. You are bad. And you're also bad with respect to violence. Look at verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. In April in New York City, there were 32 murders. That's over one per day. There were 118 rapes reported. Now, how many rapes were there actually? God only knows, but there were 118 reported. And get this, in April in New York City, there were 2,153 charges of felony assault. That is 72 a day. Ever since Cain killed Abel, we have been a violent race. Now, I'm not suggesting that you yourself are necessarily guilty of first-degree murder, although maybe you are. But in the eyes of God, murder is more than just taking the life of another person. It is a matter of the heart. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. Then he says in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. 
It's not just following through on the acts of violence, but it's the violence in our hearts. And consider how swift we as a society are to shed the innocent blood of the unborn. Because abortion is murder. Now it is true that the numbers are decreasing. But if the number is one, that is hideous. Last year, there were still over half a million abortions in America. And there were people who will read the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 and they will scoff and say, he is writing about a barbaric society of the Roman Empire and and a maniac like, like Nero, but not us today, we are civilized. Folks, in the land of the free, half a million babies being ripped apart limb by limb, defenseless in their mother's womb, that is not civilized. That is bad. You are bad. But again, this is not directed at a group of people, at a nation, or at a, or as, as a society. These are individuals who commit these acts of violence. These are bad, and the people who perform them are bad. You might be patting yourself on the back right now saying, well, I mean, I understand everything that you said about not seeking God and not understanding and saying bad words and this, that, and the other lies and so forth and so on, but I'm not a violent person. I've never killed anyone. In fact, I've never even been in a fight, and I certainly have never had an abortion. So that means that me, I myself, I am not bad. Stop saying that I'm bad. At least I'm not as bad as the Old Testament definition of bad is used by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3. And I want to remind you, yes, you are bad, for there is none righteous, no, not one. Maybe the palate that you have for an appetite of sin may be different than mine, and yours may not include violence. Your sin of choice may be different than the person sitting beside you. You might be better than me. You might be worse than me. But what we have in common is that we are both bad. We are both very bad. And we are both guilty left to ourselves before God. And even if you have never committed murder, you are still bad. One more item. And in my opinion, this is the worst, by far the worst item. And that is verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's, I am bad, and I don't care that I am bad. It's, I am bad, God, and what are you going to do about it? I had a friend who went to seminary in Mississippi, I'm sorry, in, in, in New Orleans, and then he went to Mississippi to pastor a small church, but he needed to work a second job. second job he worked was at a funeral home, and he said he was doing a funeral one time for someone from a motorcycle gang, someone that had been killed in a wreck, and of course, everyone that showed up at the funeral home were members of this particular gang, and they buried this particular young man in a T-shirt, and the T-shirt said this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because I am the baddest SOB in the valley. I would say that most of us are not that brash, but I think that the attitude is the same. I don't care, God. 
I, I, you honestly don't scare me. You don't believe in judgment day. You don't believe that he will hold you accountable. You don't believe that he will sentence you to an eternal hell. For if you believed that, then you would change the way that you are living. Here's the reason why you don't change. It is because you are bad, and part of your badness is that you don't fear God. And you could care less what he thinks about you. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, until the fear of the Lord arrives and you left to yourself, do not have any actual fear of the Lord. Until that fear of the Lord arrives, you are going to be as bad as you want to be. You know, it's one thing to have kids who are disrespectful and disobedient to their parents. They know that what they're doing is wrong. They're doing things in the house that they're not supposed to be doing. They get word that the parents are coming. They hear the car pull up into the driveway, and they stop doing the bad things immediately, and they hide all of the evidence. That is a bad thing, but it is not as bad as the children who are doing what they are doing and they know that it is bad and they hear the car pulling up into the driveway and they say, we're not going to change anything because you can't do anything to hurt me and even if you did something to try to hurt me, you couldn't hurt me. I don't care what you think. This is the attitude of the unsaved toward God. You're not going to hurt me. I don't fear you at all. I, I don't care if you see what I'm doing. He's not going to do anything. Yes, yes, he is going to do something. And if you knew that he was going to do something and what he was going to do, you would fear. But left to yourself, you don't have enough sense to fear. There's none who fears, no, not one. So I would say this to those of you that do not fear God. Number one, there's a day coming when you will stand in the judgment bar of God and when you are there, you will have absolutely no problem whatsoever fearing God, but then it will be too late. I know that a lot's going to be going through your mind on that day, but try, if you can, on that day to remember July 2nd, 2023, when the pastor told you in that day you were actually going to be good at fearing God. You will be, but it will be too late. The other thing I would say is that only God can put the fear of God in you. I cannot do that for you. I wish I could. If I could, I would. I would. Just as only God can cause you to understand and only God can cause you to seek him and only God can convict you and convince you of your lies and your slander and your cursing, so too only God can put his fear within your heart. You will continue to be bad unless he does that. But God commands us to fear him. But we're not capable of fearing him unless he reveals himself. Okay, so we have finished this katina of quotes from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures, which work together to prove that both Jews and Greeks are bad. But more importantly, it proves to you that you are bad. The next two verses uh, sum up not only what he has been saying, but why he has been saying it. Verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What is he saying here? Well, when he's speaking of the law, he's not speaking exclusively of the law of Moses, seeing as how he has not quoted the law of Moses, but he's speaking of everything from Genesis to Malachi. And he's saying it to the Jews, that those Jews who are under the law, that law was given for a purpose. The law was given to address your mind and your will and your speech and your violence and every other sin for one reason. And that reason is not so that you will now try harder and do better. It is there so that you will shut up. And I know that there are parents who do not like their children to shut up, but I don't think that there is any other language here which better says it than the purpose of the law is to get you to shut up, to shut up and stop justifying yourself and stop defending yourself, to shut up and stop excusing yourself. And you look at that law, and then you look at your life beside that law, and you have nothing to say. I have no defense, your honor. How then do you plead? Guilty as charged, your honor. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 is written, not so that you will say, I got to try harder, I got to do better. It is written so that you will come to the end of yourself with your mouth shut, making no defense whatsoever, making no excuse whatsoever, and saying, woe is me for I am undone. I can't save myself. I need you, Lord. I need help. Keeping the law is not going to save you because you can't keep the law. The purpose of Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, is so that you will look in the mirror and say, I am bad, I am very bad. The purpose of Romans 3, 10 through 18, is to give you a knowledge of sin. Not just so that you will say, okay, now I know what the rules are. No, it's to say, no, I know what the rules are. And I'm going to be held responsible for breaking these rules because I am bad. And I know that God thinks that I'm bad. And more importantly, he cares that I am bad and he's going to do something about it. I need help. Well, you need help? Come back next week and I will preach the gospel to you, the gospel which is of first importance from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and following. But if today you are saying, Pastor, I can't wait till next week. That's 168 hours from now. I have been convinced now, today, that I need help and that I am bad. And I'm scared by the fact that I am bad. And I'm scared by the fact that God cares that I'm bad. If you actually have the fear of God in you right now, and you are deeply convicted, and you are concerned, and you are convinced of your sin, that you are bad before the law of God. Here's my instruction to you. You don't have to wait till next week. Simply now cry out to Jesus Christ in faith and ask him to have mercy upon you. Yes, there are a lot of mechanics to this about the holiness of God and the incarnation and substitution and, 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 and justification. Those things are all important. You need to know those things. But for right now, the ship is going down and a lifesaver has been thrown to you. It doesn't matter what color it is. It is Jesus. Grab onto it and say, Jesus, I don't understand everything about this except one thing I do understand is that I'm bad and I need help. Oh, Jesus, save me. 
I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again on the third day. God, have mercy upon me. I am bad and you are good and I need you. You don't need to know all the mechanics. You just need Jesus. If God has indeed used his law to convict you and if the Holy Spirit has convinced you that you need to fear and you indeed fear, just cry out to Jesus to have mercy upon you. Next week... Come back, you'll get some more details on this. But you don't have to wait till next week to get saved. You can be saved today. Are you unsaved? Cry out to Jesus. Are you saved? You know that that used to be you, and he rescued you. Your heart ought to be swelling right now with joy and gladness that he rescued you and that he forgave you. Did you walk into church today thinking that you were saved, but then you look at Romans 3, 10 through, 12, uh, 10 through 18, and you say, hmm, that looks like me. Well, that looks like you. You weren't saved. You need to be saved, and you need to be saved today. Cry out to Jesus and ask him to save you, and he will. You know why he will? <sighs> because he loves you. Remember I told you to remember that? He loves you, and that's why, he'll, why he will save you. All right, 81 down, 352 to go, which means what? It means we're getting there. It means we're getting there. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would not allow the one that is convicted to, to, to walk out of this room without crying out to you. Father, I would pray that you would please give us, we who love you, Lord, more of an awareness of what you have saved us from and cause us to have more gratitude and louder praise. Lord, that we might follow you more passionately. Lord, if anybody walked in today deceived, I, I, I just pray that your word would do what your word alone can do, and that is to convince of sin. Lord, in all cases, would you point us to Christ, for he is our only help and our only hope. He died for us and he rose again. Oh, Lord, we love your son, Jesus. We need him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.